This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by the University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Environmental Justice in a Moment of Danger by Julie Z. We are living in a precarious environmental and political moment. In the United States and in the world, environmental injustices have manifested across racial and class divides in devastatingly disproportionate ways. What does this moment of danger mean for the environment and for justice? What can we learn from environmental justice struggles? Environmental justice in a moment of danger examines mobilizations and movements from protests at Standing Rock to activism in Puerto Rico in the wake of Hurricane Maria. Environmental justice movements fight, survive, love, and create in the face of violence that challenges the conditions of life itself. Exploring dispossession, deregulation, privatization, and inequality, this book is the essential primer on environmental justice, packed with cautiously hopeful stories for the future. Environmental Justice in a Moment of Danger by Julie Z. Out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The protest movement in Hong Kong has subsided, but coronavirus has people panicked and distrustful of a government whose authoritarianism and secrecy have now clearly not only damaged public health, but also further undermined the government's legitimacy. Meanwhile, Hong Kong people continue to fiercely oppose Beijing's efforts to end the one-country-two-systems order put into place after the UK handed over control to China in 1997. This most recent mass movement was launched last spring in response to a bill that would have allowed for extradition from Hong Kong to mainland China, but it quickly morphed into a larger movement for democracy and against rampant police brutality. This anti-extradition bill movement was built on the 2014 Umbrella Movement, also known as Occupy Central Movement, which was above all else for universal suffrage. What comes next and how the ongoing political crisis surrounding the coronavirus might unfold is uncertain. Today's episode is my interview with writer and activist Ao Long Yu, who spoke to me last week from Hong Kong. He explains the complex social and political economic dynamics behind the 2019 movement, and also the longer history, including the changing relationships between capital and the British colonial and then Chinese states that has shaped the politics and economics of both Hong Kong and China as a whole. He also discusses the history of Hong Kong activists using their relative civil and political liberties to support workers' struggles in China, something that the tight grip imposed by President Xi Jinping has made increasingly difficult. But Ao says that changing conditions may create new opportunities for bigger change, 
Critically, he says that such change in the mainland will be necessary for change in Hong Kong. Revolution in one city, he says, is impossible. Before we get started, I just want to say to my American listeners, take every angry, confused, hopeful, giddy, weird, and alienated feeling that has washed over you this week and plow it into hard and determined work to crush Mayor Pete's zombie neoliberalism in New Hampshire and beyond. We are winning. If you haven't started making calls or knocking on doors yet, please get involved with your local DSA chapter or go to berniesanders.com slash volunteer. Finally, I want to ask you for your support. This podcast can only be my job, and I can only pay all of the people who help make it possible because you, our listeners, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have left-wing books to send you in the mail as a thank you if you contribute $10 or more a month. One of those books is A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Another is my own new book, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. You might be at the gym right now, driving to or from work, at the grocery store, or doing dishes. And you keep meaning to make a contribution, but keep forgetting. When you get back to your computer, please remember to take a minute and make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Speaking of my book, I have a lot of tour dates coming up. Coming sooner than later is Philadelphia, Baltimore, and D.C. Philly at the Wooden Shoe on February 24th, and then in Mount Ephraim, New Jersey on the 25th at Gallery 88. D.C. at Solid State Books on February 26th in conversation with Dara Lind, and then on February 27th at Metro D.C. DSA's Socialist Night School, and then off to Baltimore on February 28th at Red Emma's in conversation with Christy Thornton. Okay, here's Ao Long Yu, a longtime writer and activist based in Hong Kong. He is the author of China's Rise, Strength and Fragility. He is currently working on a book on the Hong Kong 2019 revolt. How long you? Welcome to the dig. Oh yes, uh, good morning. On my side, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> good evening from me, and good yeah. morning from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here in the U.S., Hong Kong has been out of the headlines recently, after nearly a year of Hong Kong politics being on the front page or close to the front page, nearly every day. Is that because the protests have waned or because here in the U.S. we've been distracted because we have a presidential election, the impeachment, and for a few weeks recently, nearly a war with Iran? What is the current state of the movement and the political conflict? As far as the uh, anti-extradition movement is concerned, I think uh, 
towards the end of uh, 2019, there's already obvious signs that uh, the movement is receding. With the onset of this coronavirus issue and the pandemic is spreading, the movement is uh, basically is, uh, no longer what it was half a year ago, especially in terms of these uh, young people's uh, clashing with the police. This, there was still some individual incidents of this kind, but the scale is very, very small. So the movement, as I said, was receding for the moment. The rapid spread of the coronavirus has led to much of China, including Hong Kong, being put on, on various degrees of lockdown with, with different sorts of travel restrictions. Yeah. It, it's also created a bit of a crisis for the Chinese government, exposing its inability to coordinate the necessary response to what has turned out to be a massive public health crisis. How is the coronavirus affecting both everyday life and politics in Hong Kong, and and how might its impact affect the larger political dynamic in mainland China and Hong Kong? In terms of daily life, it is now getting very, very hard. I, uh, uh, as you may have already known uh, from the news that uh, today's uh, in Hong Kong, there is a short supplies of masks and people are in panic. We are not far from the possible scenarios of riot if the shortage doesn't solve in a few days. Because without a mask, then if you go out, you have you put yourself in great risk. You put other people in great risk. But the problem is uh, here, actually, there is also a problem of, of uh, wealth distribution. The government has uh, uh, asked the people not to go out, but but for many many working people, if they do not work, then they do not have income. That's so simple. Therefore, however bad the situation outside, they have to go out to work. But now the the, the mask with its price is soaring to absurd level. Some of these masks is already tenfold of the prices of, of what it was previously. And for those really poor working people, they really can't afford to buy masks, even if that it is on the sale. So for these people, they are very angry and they are very, very desperate. Not to say those uh, disabled and uh, uh, senior citizens who... Uh, have to uh, still have to go out uh, for food, for uh, visiting doctors, and so on and so forth. So the government is simply irresponsible to tell the people not to go out. They simply does not understand what the working people or what, what the poor people's lives is. And it leads us to the second issue that you raised is uh, about the politics. I guess if this mask is evenly distributed across Hong Kong people, probably is still it is enough for everyone. But the problem is, yes, firstly, we have still a so-called free market or less a fair policy from the Hong Kong government, which means non-intervention at every level, even 
in the midst of a pandemic. And we are even doing worse than the Macau government, whereas the Macau government is uh, using its public power to guarantee that uh, every uh, Macau citizens could could buy a minimum numbers of masks every day in commissioned uh, shops. Uh, so there's less pan, uh, less panic emotions in Macau. But the Hong Kong government simply tell people to uh, to go to the, to the free market to buy their own stuff. They do nothing to ease uh, the shortage of supplies. So, so we have, uh, in the end, that uh, lots of people uh, now do not have a mask when they go out, or they were first forced uh, to to stay inside. And this led, and this also again leads us to the second issue in politics is that. Um, this government has zero credibility nowadays. No one, even th those including some of the previously pro Beijing's uh, uh, peoples, now do not believe what the government said. But in a pandemic, this makes situation worse. Is simply because even if they are, if what they say is true, but no one believe it, so. In the end, we will, there is still a rush for for the mask, and if this situation uh, uh, could not be eased, uh, then we will be led to a even worse scenarios of what I said is uh, probably is chaos and then um, riots, and uh, and I'm really really also concerned about this anti-Chinese uh, mood here, which is get is getting stronger and stronger as well. So we are in a, in a very dire situation. In terms of the political implications of this crisis, do you see it playing out in any sort of coordinated way, or do you see it more right now as a, as a more diffuse panic? You, you've mentioned a few factors. There's the mask shortage, which reflects a, a broader shortcoming in the healthcare system and an even broader problem in terms of the hoarding of resources by the rich and people's well-being being left to the so-called free market. You you mentioned this contradiction between the government telling people to stay home for public health purposes and the contradictory capitalist imperative that they work in order to survive and put food on the table. And, and then you also talked about the the lack of legitimacy and credibility with the people that the government has. Right now, how do you see this this playing out in both in the short, medium, and perhaps longer term? In the short terms, uh, I, as I said, there's a there's a danger of uh, sinking into chaos. I hope this is not the only possible scenario. The government uh, yesterday has guaranteed that okay, um, we will uh, deliver eight million masks very soon. But the problem is, uh, if I have uh, no uh, uh, trust on this government. I don't know, and there's no timeline. When he said very soon, sir, no one knows how soon it was. It is, sir. and in the medium term, I think surely there is a bit of countervailing forces, which is now at work to fight this uh, virus. I think uh, it is true that uh, some people has pointed out, and I think it is true that yes. Um, the uh, Chinese government, in terms of uh, of medical investment, 
over this virus preventions and researchers. It has been uh, putting a lot of money uh, into the into this research since 2003's uh, SARS pandemic. So I hope that uh, yes, uh, very soon they could come up with some new treatment, come up with some antibiotics or or vaccine and so on. Uh. But the problem is uh, there is also true that no one knows when it could be delivered. So the great uncertainty still hang above all of us. So in the, even in the medium terms, if these uh, new treatments or vaccines and so on could not be delivered uh, sooner, then more people will die and the possibility of a partial chaos turning into a nationwide chaos uh, will be imminent in this situation. That is what is most worrying. As you know already, yes, uh, in China, there is a widespread uh, hostility towards anyone who comes from Wuhan. And it has reached irrational level. And just imagine that uh, in the next several weeks, if there is uh, no treatment, no new treatment, and uh, uh, death tolls rising, and the present figures of nearly uh, 8,000 uh, patients, if it, uh, if it continues rise to more than 10,000, uh, 15,000, then I think a partial chaos then may turn into a nationwide situation. I hope I'm wrong. Yes, I hope it is not that bad because we are, all our lives now is at stake. But uh, we must also prepare for the worst. And this is there is one important element that we have to to consider, and this is also actually related to the anti-extradition bill movement. It is the complete degenerations and incompetence of the Communist Party's bureaucracy. It is always uh, my thesis that it is in, it is it is a very interesting phenomenon. It I mean the uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party's bureaucracy that it is highly contradictory. On one hand, it is a terribly effective driving force for modernization. If you look at the Qing dynasty in, uh, towards the end of its uh, uh, dynasty, yes, it, is also trying to, it was also trying to modernize China, but it failed. And then it was the turn of the Kuomintang, uh, the KMT regime and its modernization uh, program was also failing miserably. But the Chinese Communist Party, uh, uh, for all the fault, I mean, apart from all its fault, all its wrongdoings, there is one thing that is different from all other previous regimes is that, yes, it was able to modernize China much, much more effective. But at the same time, in terms of politics, this bureaucracy, this party was also very premodern to the extent that, yes, it demands, the leaders demands a kind of loyalty uh, which was uh, premodern, which is uh, not only that it turns citizens into all its subjects, but also in, even for its bureaucracy, it demands a kind of loyalty which is you just can't, cannot just kneel down be, before your superiors. You have to kowtow. You can never 
disagree with your superiors, far up to the highest levels of the political leadership. So in the end, yes, uh, as some Western media has already noted that, yes, all around the leaders at every level, they are all yes men. They never disagree. They never tell the top leader what is actually going on. So we have a government which is so effective in cracking down dissidents and the civil society, but it is absolutely incompetent in fighting the virus or in uh, just warning the people. Come on, huh? you know uh, it is killing people. You have to warn the people about this pandemic is coming. But no, the Western media has already picked up this uh, this uh, situations and then yes uh, criticize the, the how these absolutisms uh, of Chinese Communist parties is responsible for this uh, pandemic but to add one more dimensions uh, to see this thing even more clearly is what is that this dimension I mean what I said is uh, uh, this pre-modern political culture among the party state it this thing it is is precisely is basic weakness, uh, so basic that it could it simply have no ability to solve this problem itself. So you see, actually, is uh, in this pandemics where truth is the most valuable thing. But the government, even until today, is still arresting honest people who try to tell the world what is going on. And we already see uh, from the past experience of the Chinese Communist Party that. It simply could not uh, really discipline its own bureaucracy. We are seeing a dismantling of social fabrics in every level, in the political level, surely, and also in the moral level. In the political levels, people are, are uh, uh, some of my friends in mainland China is already uh, making comments. I'm not sure how far it is, huh? But uh, at least this is a topic that needs to be discussed, an open debate on, uh, is that once the uh, Wuhan's uh, pandemics uh, become more widespread, according to my friends who tell me, uh, in the Wuhan government, in the municipal government, at every level, it's just paralyzed. Though some of these bureaucrats, some of the officials actually just run away. Some of these officials, yes, they are still performing their duty, but they don't know what to do. They don't know how to do. Uh, should they keep on crackdown on those uh, on news? Or should they uh, uh, release it? Or should they, what they do? What should they do? Yes, there is a great chaos since uh, uh, the end of 2018 already. Uh, so it is... Uh, uh, at least in the Wuhan level, and we are talking a city with 10, 10 million uh, population. Uh, that, that in Wuhan, the administrations actually paralyzed. And if this, it is luckily, this is still a partial situation. But how about nationally speaking? What has the central government has been doing? They only sent in additional medical uh, staffs uh, to, uh, to Wuhan. After the outbreak has broken out for more than a month, are they really crazy? Shouldn't they move much more quicker? Even in the national level, uh, there, there is not yet a complete paralyzed or, well, a mostly paralyzed situation. But you can see the total incompetence of this uh, bureaucracy. And actually, a hundred years ago, sir, there is already 
uh, even uh, yeah, in Europe, in America, there is a, a growing public awareness on on the problems of how to deal with uh, pandemics. Huh? Honesty and truth is so so important. I still remember the, uh, when I was a teen, I read uh, the is it Danish is the the Ibsen, the Ibsen's um, novels about the people's enemy. Huh? These things has already been discussed. And uh, uh, and the lessons drawn, a uh, hundred years ago, in uh, in Europe, it is also becomes one of our ingredients of uh, running a modern society. But Chinese Communist Party still try to administer a pandemic with a pre-modern uh, political mindset. That whenever there is pandemic, the first thing you do is to suppress it. So this is what. We are we are witnessing the the the, the consequences now, so I think um, this, uh, if there is ever any positive things about this pandemic, is what is that? I think uh, this uh, pandemics actually exposed the, the greatest weakness of the present regime. I think in both sense that, firstly, the anti extradition bill movement has exposed it. The Communist Party's political agenda is to finish off Hong Kong autonomy altogether. And now with this pandemics, it exposed its own weakness of administering a modern society. The virus, you're saying, has revealed how Chinese authoritarianism creates a, a communication problem because there are these layers of bureaucratic yes-men and the censorship, and that's all led to a situation where the top can't hear or see what's going on at the bottom, which in the case of the coronavirus has made it difficult to understand and then respond to the public health crisis. To what extent will this create a serious problem where the government will find it more difficult to secure popular consent? Because in the past, of course, there's always speculation on the outside that the Chinese government is entering into some sort of significant legitimacy crisis or crisis or governmental crisis. But so far, the Chinese government has been able to withstand extraordinary crises, including the its massive response to the economic crisis of 2008. Do you think this will be any different? With the onset of this uh, pandemic, uh, uh, surely the economic growth uh, will be hard to hit. People's uh, com- uh, economists... Uh, among the economist community, there is a uh, strong opinion that uh, for 2020s, uh, Chinese uh, economic growth uh, will not exceed six percent, and so on and so forth. Yes, so there's uh, there's going to be problems. Surely, the Communist Party's uh, diplomats uh, or economists uh, continues to tone down the crisis uh, by saying that. Um, Yes, uh, with a six percent growth, or even a bit less, still uh, the highest in average globally speaking. Well, uh, if you look at the f- just look at the figure itself, yes, this is uh, maybe true. But the problem is, we have to bear in mind that one Chinese special feature is that in China, because of the huge population, we need a much higher economic growth than many countries in other parts of the world in order to provide enough uh, jobs to the population. 
because in China, uh, the so-called intensity of creating jobs in relation to economic growth is quite low in China because of the fact that, yes, China is, has been upgrading its industry very, very fast. Whereas 30 years ago, there's still a lot of investments, uh, 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 labor-intensive uh, sectors with the continuous uh, upgrading of industry. Actually, there, is, there, were, there have been more and more capital-intensive investment, which means that, the, that there are less jobs creations following these upgradings of industry. So China uh, needs a particularly higher growth rate in order to absorb every year's millions of their fresh graduates uh, and also not to say the 200 million um, uh, rural migrant workers seeking for jobs and so on. So the situation could be becoming problematic with a slowing down of economic growth. And with this pandemic, that situation, the risk is even higher. And then we uh, we come to the second part. Yeah, yeah. well, China, uh, Chinese uh, governments has rolled out a package, a, a a package giving out, uh, so, or what the Americans said, uh, Chinese governments has been throwing out money from the helicopter to save uh, the economy. In two thousand eight, they spent the central government spent uh, something like um, four billion uh, renminbi. And then, uh, in addition to that, uh, municipal governments also spent billions of dollars to, to boost the economy. Yes, and then, yes, uh, we didn't suffer long-term crisis as uh, in Europe or in America. But the problem is, uh, for 10 years, this is very clear, the consequence of this uh, 2008 package is a terrible rise uh, in the national debt. Now we have a uh, debt ratios of uh, 300, more than 350% of the GDP, which for a low-middle-income countries is very, very high. So it actually is narrowed down the policies maneuverings uh, of the government because if it roll out another pa- uh, package, packages this time with the same kind of scale as the 2008, then the risk of a debt crisis will be even much more higher. Are you saying that the slowdown in Chinese growth could intersect with the coronavirus pandemic to create a new economic crisis that the Chinese government wouldn't have the same tools that it did a decade ago to respond to? Yes, it is uh, uh, possible. Uh, and uh, surely... you. The problem is it lies in here that even if they repeat the same uh, policy, this just this will just create another problem, huh? which means the piling up of the debt, and debt has to be paid someday. Huh? In the short term, it may save uh, the economy from a from a from a slump, but in in the medium terms, it's just creating another problems. So this is uh, what I what I mean. I want to return to talking about the last year of of politics in Hong Kong. In December, before coronavirus emerged as a major issue, the left-wing Chinese news site Lausanne wrote, quote, After a year of resistance, everyone is jaded 
and in a vulnerable emotional state. There doesn't seem to be an obvious way out, and while our position in global politics is being consolidated, it isn't taking form as quickly as we'd like. Peaceful rallies seem to be ineffectual, and frontliners have fought their way to a standstill. The cost of resistance has risen exponentially. We have entered an era where anyone who looks young and is clothed in black may be arbitrarily arrested. Why is it that the movement in Hong Kong reached an impasse when it did? Towards uh, September, there was already obvious signs that the movement has reached a bottleneck because it no longer could significantly escalate the battle against the government and its call uh, for a general strike in early September does not really does not really succeed at all, which is a contrast to the situation in early August. I would say that yes, the the climax of this movement is the general strike in the fifth of August. Surely, uh, uh, the the strike was not able to paralyze all of Hong Kong, but significant section of it was paralyzed, uh, especially the airport. Uh, half of it is paralyzed. And uh, also, yes, transportation is so chaos that the whole day many people couldn't, even if they didn't go to, uh, did not go on strike on its own initiative, they were forced to, to uh, stay outside of their office, actually, because of the transport problems, because of the chaos. But, uh, but when the protesters uh, call for a second general strike in early September, that doesn't work. Uh, it was because after the August 5th uh, general strike, which is quite successful, there was very soon retaliations uh, from the Beijing government. The Beijing government hard-pressed uh, the Cafe Pacific president, and they were forced to step down. Of the airline? That, yeah, of the airline, yes. And then... Very soon, uh, the Cafe Pacific management shifted uh, the consequence to their employees by sacking uh, 35 or 36 uh, airlines, uh, the flight attendants. So in the end, it was the, the employees who bears all the consequences. The Beijing government's uh, the reason has to crack down uh, on the Cafe Pacific uh, employee was because simply because um, on the date of the 5th of August, probably half of the flight attendants of Cafe Pacific went on strike. So the Beijings want to revenge on them. And then from then on, a lot more retaliations uh, has uh, occurred. And was there any effective response uh, from the protest movement? No, none. We can't. The, the, for a long time, the uh, there is no effective response. They don't know how to do. They don't know what to do to save themselves. So, therefore, when the students call for a general strike again in September, it is natural and reasonable to see that there is no real responses from, from the working people, even if some unions had tried it at their best. And then what followed is a very typical situation uh, in many parts of the world's uh, social movement as well, that when the when when the mass struggle was not effective enough to respond to 
repression and retaliation, and then it recedes a bit in its scale and in its mass strike and so on. There, the most advanced uh, part of the movement, the young radicals, begins to come up with a idea of taking even more radical actions into substitute mass mobilization instead. So, from September onwards, there were even more efforts by radical young, uh, uh, radical young people to practically force the working people to go on strike by blocking the roads, by paralyzing the railways uh, through, you know, throwing throwing different kinds of obstacles uh, and things uh, to the uh, track to, so that so the trains could be stopped. And then it further escalated into, uh, into November's the two great occupations in two universities. Firstly, in Chinese university, and then followed by the polytechnic universities. So the Chinese university was occupied for for a week, and for the poly universities, even much longer for several weeks. And the reason that there is a heavy clashes uh, at the bridge of the Chinese university, I think here uh, we need to be truthful to ourselves. the The reason that uh, there is heavy clashes. Uh, I think it is on the 11th or and 12th of uh, November, uh, where several thousands of uh, students uh, occupy the Chinese university and fight the police, who is uh, trying to take back the number two bridge. But here, there are lots of reports from students uh, by saying that, yes, uh, the reason for the conflict is the, the police uh, try to take over the Chinese university. But here, I think there it is not so clear. This claim is not so clear as it is, because if the police really uh, uh, wanted uh, to to take over the Chinese university, it can easily do that uh, by doubling or tripling uh, their police forces. But I think it is technically not a viable choice for the police is because Chinese University is quite big. It is a very big campus and it is very scattered all throughout uh, the, the, the hills. So even if they uh, really broke, broke into Chinese University, they will find it very difficult to track down and arrest all the students or most of the students. And from all the circumstances evidences, I think um, the police main target was to take back the number two bridge only. Because with the students occupying the number two bridge, which it means that uh, the, the students can throw all kinds of objects down to the railways, uh, uh, down to the road, the main roads uh, below. But this will stop all traffic uh, linking up the, new, uh, the, the, the uh, eastern part of New Territories and Kowloon. So the police had uh, cracked down I think its tactical goal is to stop the students from from being able to throw objects down to the roads only. But anyway, but on the students' side, why do they want to occupy the number two uh, bridge? It was because of the same reason that they want to stop traffic going, so that they could paralyze uh, uh, the transport 
of Hong Kong. And then through this, they could make the, the strike materialized on its own. So this is a, uh, I think it is a very controversial tactics because uh, there are also many, many peoples, uh, working peoples, do not want to go on strike and, on that day and do not want transport to be stopped on that day. And if they were late to work or they, if they could not able to go to work at all, they were forced to do so. So there were a, a lot of people, including uh, union peoples, disagree with this tactic. But anyway, the students, uh, they, they just do what they want to do. So this, uh, it is a common phenomenon, actually, is worldwide in social movement, yes, that when the mass participations of participation in the movements begins to resist, well, so those radical, most advanced part, uh, wants to continue the movement, and they begin to take some tactics which may antagonize uh, the rest of the uh, movement stakeholders. Why Why is it that, that labor unions have not been able to play a more significant role in the protest movement? H- has there ever been a strong labor movement in Hong Kong? Never. That is the problem here. Yeah. So it's uh, actually... The August 5th uh, general strike, the, the trade unions, uh, uh, the so-called uh, Confederation of Trade Unions, to their credit, did uh, enthusiastically embrace the idea and went ahead to organize it. Surely they are not the only organizers. Uh, yeah, with the help of all peoples uh, in the movement, the general strike was materialized successfully. So they have tried it to their best. But we must, yes, always, yes, bear in mind that the, the Hong Kong labor movement was always very, very weak. And it is not just organizationally speaking. Surely, in terms of organization, it is also very, very weak. It has, uh, it claims to have a lot of members, hundreds of thousands of members, but regrettably, most of these are just on papers. Then there never a real rank and file Activisms in the in the trade union never, uh, but this weak this organizational weakness is multiplied by also one political weakness that the uh, the CTU has always politically just tail ending the pandemocrats the liberals parties. It is now very clear, and even the pandemocrats uh, leaders sometimes uh, admit their errors that they have been too timid, too meek uh, in the promotions of a democratic movement. They never dare to demand for universal suffrage, uh, not until the handover. So for 20 years, from 1980s until 2000, the Liberals' parties could only dare to uh, demand for 40 or 50% of the legislature's seats uh, to be uh, directly elected. So it was their own failure in meeting up the greatest challenge we ever face, which means a, a, a handover of sovereignty. It was the, uh, the, it was the failure of these liberals to lead the Hong Kong peoples out of this terrible crisis. Uh, and they are so silly that they 
trusted the Beijing government that it was going to honor its promises of universal suffrage gradually. So in the end, now for more than 35 years, we don't see any universal suffrage near us. Huh? So, uh, but the problem lies in here that the trade unions has always been faithfully tail-ending the Liberal Party's political line and program. In the end, they totally disconnect themselves from the young generation. These unions don't even meet basic liberal democratic demands, let alone socialist democratic demands. No, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, even uh, uh, in the 1990s, uh, the leaders of this, uh, the Confederation of Trade Unions oppose the idea from some left-wing groups uh, that Hong Kong should have a minimum wage. Yeah, and the leader in the ele- uh, uh, during the election campaign openly declared that, well, I'm, we, we, we oppose a uh, minimum wage. This is a planted economy idea. This is what he said. So it is, uh, well, to their credit, we must admit that after uh, the handover, the, the CTU gradually came to their sense and become embracing the, uh, the minimum wage demands again. And they did a uh, promotion campaign uh, to fight for that. And eventually, because of whatever reason, the government by that time is still a bit uh, a bit more liberal than today's. So the government uh, conceded and uh, imposed a minimum wage in Hong Kong for the first time. So one can still see the basic weakness of these uh, uh, labor uh, labor unions. So that is also why when the first generation of young people who suddenly come to their senses that, yes, that the Beijing will never honor its promise, that it is going to finish off our autonomy altogether very, very soon. So it is the 2014 umbrella generation who rose up and fight hard for the first time for universal suffrage, which is a brilliant act. But they did not have the endorsements of the pan-democrat parties. All the pan-democrat parties came out in opposition to the occupation idea. The, the Occupy Central idea. Even after the uh, occupation happened, most of the pan-democratic parties, day in and day out, they just try to persuade the students to withdraw from occupation, to give up the occupation. And this really antagonized the young generation. And the CTU unions, uh, in this uh, in these scenarios, they are all very passive. So disconnect, I mean the umbrella movement, uh, proved that the, well, both the Liberal parties and the CTUs could really no longer a viable political force which could protect Hong Kong people. And that's, that's pronounces their downfall. Luckily, in 2019, uh, uh, this time the CTUs was a bit more proactive and they came out to organize strike and so on, which is helpful to them and helpful to Hong Kong. But still, because this weakness has been uh, rooted, so, so, so deep rooted for so many years, is still unable to give a strong response to this retaliation I talked about. That is why after the August climax, the labor union could no longer really mobilize to fight back. But surely there, right now there is also still new openings and new hope 
but I will talk about that later. The protest movement has five demands, including universal suffrage, an independent inquiry into police brutality, and amnesty for arrested protesters. But the original demand was to withdraw the extradition bill. And Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam did just that in September. But as Eli Friedman told Jacobin, quote, opposition to this bill was the original catalyst for the movement. And many believe that if the bill had been withdrawn in June, the protests would have died down. Unfortunately for the government, their ham-fisted response and brutal repression by the police generated more demands, such that by the time the bill was finally withdrawn in September, people were hardly impressed. Why was extradition to mainland China, why was that the issue that catalyzed this broader, long-standing anger over forced incorporation, over the forced incorporation of Hong Kong into China and demands for political democracy? And why was that the thing that, that, that prompted this, this mass movement? And then what, what is the significance of the movement becoming a movement that was also and is also centrally about police repression? Uh, of course, police brutality is uh, added fuel uh, to this anger of the people. But I will say uh, there, are, there is one more important underlying issue that I will talk about later. Uh, first, I respond to the uh, questions of this uh, bill. Uh, what is the significance of this bill? Why it was uh, uh, widely opposed? It is obvious that, yes, um, this bill, when presented by the government or by Beijing, they try to uh, sell this bill by saying that, oh, we only target those uh, mainland ref- uh, uh, fugitives who fled China and hide in Hong Kong. But they had done illegal. Uh, but they uh, had done illegal things. So we just go after them through this bill. It was a particular high-profile murder case that they yes, used, right? Yes, 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 yes. But uh, I don't go into detail because everyone knows uh, that, uh, that this is this this murder is using this murder as a um, as a as a leverage is simply silly and stupid. It convinces no one. But if they say, but they have a second line of defense, which is what I said, that, well, the bill is to go after Chinese uh, uh, fugitive. But if you read the bill, it is very clear. It targets everyone who happens to be in Hong Kong. Well, even including you, Daniel, if you talk about China's uh, critical tone and then the Chinese government doesn't like you and you happen to be in Hong Kong, they could also arrest you under this bill. I mean the Hong Kong government, and then send you back to China for trial. So this is just a lie for Beijing. When they say, when they said that the bill just target mainland uh, refugees, uh, no, no, mainland uh, fugitive. So it targets everyone, and that makes everyone angry, including the the uh, many uh, uh, Western countries government because they know uh, their nationals will be put in danger because of this. And for Hong Kong people, surely they uh, they know what's going on because everyone's remember in 2015, the Bookshop 5 uh, incident, which I briefly tell the story about this, is, is uh, that five bookshops, uh, owners and staff were actually kidnapped in different ways. At least two of them uh, could be proven. 
that they were kidnapped from Hong Kong or from outside Hong Kong uh, in Thailand, for instance, uh, were kidnapped back to China. And the reason of uh, Beijing doing this is um, commonly believed that it is because the bookshop has published the books about uh, Xi Jinping's um, private life. And that's pits off Beijing. And the princelings. Yes, and the princelings and so on, yes. So this extrajudicial uh, uh, kidnap really, really pits off Hong Kong people. And they, and they know very well from then on that Hong Kong's autonomy, the so-called one country, two system, is finished. Well, but if Beijing could be a, a bit more moderate, well, and not rolling out this extradition bill, Possibly, there is no China. There is no great protest in two thousand nineteen. Possibly not even this year, because there is deep demoralization after the failures of the Umbrella Movement. So, who revived uh, the protest in Hong Kong? Actually, it's the Beijing themselves. It is the Carrie Lam's governments themselves who who trigger off the anger of the people again by rolling out this bill. Uh, and this leads us to uh, the second question that we just talked about. That, well, surely in September 4th, uh, Carrie Lambs has already announced the official withdrawal of the bill. But the problem is not just police repression that angered the people into raising the five demands, not one less. So they keep the, mo- they keep the momentum of the movement going and reach the, the climax in August. No, not just police brutality. It is also the police collusions with mafia. The triads. Yes, which is so obvious in the 21st July's incident. Actually, this is not just one single event. Back in 2014 Umbrella Movement, all the circumstantial evidence also pointed to a scenario of Beijing and the Hong Kong government colluding uh, with the Hong Kong mafia and calling them out to beat up uh, protesters in Mong Kok already. And for long time, China experts, uh, if they really observed the situation for a long time, they must have known this, that the Beijing's policy is to work with those mafia which uh, had announced their loyalty to Beijing uh, to work with them so that they could be used as a dark force in uh, repressing the people. Actually, sir, the 20 years back, the head of the public orders uh, departments in China, when he was interviewed, he already said that, yeah, uh, this, this guy's uh, surname is Tao. Huh? Uh, this, uh, Mr. Tao already said that, well, you can't say all the mafia are bad people. Huh? Some of them are patriotic. So everyone knows that. If Chinese uh, communist parties uh, label anyone as uh, patriotic, which means uh, the, well, they already being be Tongzhan, uh, uh, the names, or they they already been co-opted as one of the allies. And since then, uh, various uh, circumstantial evidences or even confession by some mafia head points to this direction that Beijing it was working uh, with mafia long time ago. And, this, and then, so you can see in 2014, the mafia beating up uh, protesters. And then in 2019, 
It's uh, the July 21st incident, which happened uh, in a train stop called Yunlong, where a hundreds of mafia just using the using sticks and beat up anyone who came out uh, from the uh, from the train indiscriminately, because they they think that these people must have came back from a great protest in Central. So they just see them as all are responsible for this protest and uh, physically assault all passengers. And the police at that time, for 39 minutes, did nothing. Even if there are hundreds of calls, thousands of calls uh, to the police to tell them that uh, the mafia is coming out and, and so on, and but they do not respond. And in many events, they just put down their phone. And actually, there are uh, the protesters saw uh, policemen walking, just simply walk by the attack and pretend not to see anything. And when being confronted later, the police officer could not really reply to these that questions from reporters. And then uh, what, a head of the uh, cabinet in the government begged the reporters, please don't ask this question anymore. So you can see there is... Uh, a uh, huge conspiracy is going on. And this is what pisses off the people here, that they today knows very well that the Communist Party wants to finish off Hong Kong autonomy altogether by extrajudicial kidnapping, by working with mafia, uh, and so on and so forth. So it is not just police brutality which keeps the movement's momentum going on, even after the Gary Lam's announce its uh, uh, withdrawal of the bill. If the extradition bill, from a strategic perspective, was an overreach on Beijing's part, then why did they do it? What is Beijing's strategy, since they seem to have created mass resistance that they could have easily avoided provoking? What's the imperative driving Beijing's effort to destroy Hong Kong's autonomy? Why do they think that's necessary? I think there could be uh, you know, uh, seven, uh, several levels of responses to your questions. On the first level, obviously, it was because uh, Xi Jinping's uh, leadership, what was different from the past, was that began to overestimate its strength. We, could, we already witnessed that in the, in the uh, trade conflict with U.S., we already witnessed that also uh, in the Huawei case, in the Zhongxin Tongxun case as well. And then in relation to in relation to Hong Kong, what is interesting to see is that back four or five years uh, years ago already, there was beginning official uh, discourses uh, from Beijing uh, trying to belittle Hong Kong. They keep on saying that well, China now. With the China rise, Hong Kong's uh, positive function for China has been declining rapidly. Whereas uh, 30 years ago, Hong Kong's economy equals to 25% of the Chinese GDP. Now, today, maybe just 3-4% or even less. So, this uh, Chinese official discourse conclusion is that, well, Hong Kong is finishing on its own. Hong Kong is no longer important to China. So forget all about your demand for uh, full autonomy, 
for universal suffrage and so on, you simply are no longer important to us. This cause was repeatedly pronounced in the media, in academia, in the political level, and so on. But uh, the problem lies in here that this is just half truth. I don't know who is advising Xi Jinping's or their political bureaus on Hong Kong affair. If it is really the Hong Kong and Macau affair office people who offer this advice, then they are giving ill advice because this is not even half truth. This is just maybe one tenth of the truth. Hong Kong's importance does not lie on just uh, the size of GDP. Uh, just imagine this: uh, that seventy uh, percent of China's inflow foreign direct investment comes through Hong Kong, and similar proportions of China's outward foreign direct investment, or if at least comparable proportion, also goes to Hong Kong. And then just imagine this: uh, that Hong Kong's uh, the Chinese um, corporations. Also relies on Hong Kong to raise, to borrow money, which means corporate debt, and then we also had Hong Kong. The financial market uh, is uh, one of the top five in the world, and actually today's more than sixty percent of the stock market values belongs to Chinese companies. So, in terms of IPO, uh, the floating of company of Chinese corporations, Hong Kong is the very very important site. Of IPO, so Chinese economy in many other areas still relies on Hong Kong very much, and not to say that、uh, Hong Kong was treated as separate custom territory. Therefore, Chinese corporations which operate in Hong Kong could receive treatment much better than they were or they are in mainland China, especially including. High technology importation. So when the Xi Jinping leadership thought that Hong Kong is no longer important, they made a grave mistake. And then, in terms of the bill, I really don't know who is advising the top leaders over the legal issues, because as readers or audience knows knows as well, extradition thing is very very complicated. It requires very deep knowledge about legal systems in the world, in other parts of the world, and all the procedures and so on. And Hong Kong is、uh, still has the British law in place. And then it is if the Chinese government really just want to target Chinese mainland fugitive, then it is easy. They can just write the bill、uh, to narrow the bill down to just targeting this mainland Chinese. Or, of course, I do not support that. Or, if they also want to target Hong Kong people, well, then they could、uh, write the bill to the extent that they only target mainland Chinese and Hong Kong Chinese. In this case, the Western government would probably do very little to oppose the bill at all, because they don't. It, the bill doesn't affect them at all. So, if advisor, legal advisors of the top leaders, is a bit more competent. Even to their interest, to the bureaucracy's interest, they shouldn't have write the bill in that way. This is a bill that targets everyone, and this would make the world turns against you. That's so simple. 
So this is exactly what happened. And so uh, time and again, it leads us back to the conclusion that who is advising uh, Xi Jinping. And lastly, at least in the economic side, there is some reports about the advisors of Xi Jinping that he was advised by an economist, Mr. Hu, Mr. Hu, who uh, argued that China, because of its rise, has already been head to head and shoulder and shoulder with the U.S., which means that China now today is so strong that we can compete with U.S. If that is true, then, well, I think uh, Xi Jinping has chosen uh, the worst advice, economic advisor he could, he could get. So people, anyone who is, have some familiarity with uh, politics uh, knows this very clearly, that if a, a leader repeatedly cho- cho- uh, cho- cho- choose a silly and stupid advisor, this means that the leader himself, well, probably a man, isn't it, in China, yeah, the, 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 the leader himself will probably be also quite silly. And I think this is a fair comment until, you know, the, they could give us more openness and tell us the truth. An article I read by Brian C.H. Fong on the political economic history of Hong Kong was very interesting. He writes that under British rule, the local Hong Kong government had relative autonomy from Hong Kong capitalists but that this relative autonomy has been lost under Chinese rule. He, he writes, quote, As some neo-Marxists have pointed out, under a capitalist system, the state must serve the interests of the bourgeoisie by facilitating capital accumulation on the one hand, but must also maintain a certain degree of autonomy from the capitalist class on the other. The significance of relative autonomy lies in its strategic importance in enabling the state to pursue a policy agenda broader than the interests of any particular interest group and achieve an appropriate balancing of different interests in society. My question is, what is the significance of Hong Kong's government having lost so much of this autonomy and potentially being set to lose even more under Chinese rule? Does the relative autonomy of local government still nonetheless play an important role for Beijing, whether it realizes it or not, in terms of the need for Hong Kong's legal system to remain independent for the purpose of attracting global capital? Well, uh, uh, this is a uh, very important question. I agree with the comments uh, that Brian, you quoted, but I would like to elaborate a bit more. The British government they allow quite big economic autonomy and liberty uh, for the local Chinese bourgeoisie from the very beginning. But this is not because of any goodwill, surely, not because of any good intention. It's it's simply because of one thing, that they already control the most important resources and all the upstream uh, economic power and then uh, profit from it. They just don't give a shit to those downstreams, less important uh, economic sector at all. The first most important resources that it controlled was the land, through declaring that all Hong Kong land becomes crown land. And then anyone uh, who wanted to, to do business has to rent or so-called lease from the government. This already gave them 
huge economic power and uh, uh, get a big profit from it because they will just hand cheap land to British corporations and to their cronies, while the Chinese has to pay a lot of money to lease the land, uh, both or maybe for living or maybe for doing business and so on. So uh, not to say all the other economic sectors which is uh, uh, very profitable and monopolistic, say the airlines, the buses, uh, the railway, communication, they were all monopolized by British capital. And uh, because of this, yeah, they are already uh, well-fed. So therefore, they don't mind at all that, uh, that they allow the local bourgeoisie uh, to, to make money in those highly competitive and low-profit rate uh, sectors, from catering to all these retail sales or the wholesale or wholesalers or storage, uh, these kind of things. Surely, uh, with the declines of British uh, Empire, the, China, the, the local bourgeoisie also becomes more and more wealthy, uh, the, and the British uh, capital, the share, the, the, have their market shares uh, uh, declined very rapidly already 30 years before the handover. So this is, this is what benefits the local bourgeoisie. But the problem here is also very obvious that the local bourgeoisie, so-called autonomy, is chiefly an, entire, an entirely an economic one. In political terms, it is totally incompetent, totally useless. In they couldn't, they could not even form a unified and strong bourgeoisie party. And this is one of the reasons why uh, the Beijing government uh, take direct control today. Thirty-five years ago, uh, when British government uh, negotiates uh, with Beijing over the over the Hong Kong handover. Uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, did hint that, yes, uh, we are going to rely on the Hong Kong bourgeoisie to rule Hong Kong. We are not going to have direct control. Well, uh, you may or may not believe his promise, but the issue is still very clear that if the bourgeoisie, with such economic resources, why couldn't they even come up with a strong political party? Precisely because of this complete failure, which allows instead the Beijing, the pro-Beijing party, which means the umbrella organizations of the Communist parties here. This allows, this, this allows the Communist parties to grow, I mean the umbrella organization, uh, the, yeah, uh, to, to grow into a big political party. Why does this, this small bourgeoisie liberal party it's so uninfluential. It's entirely at the mercy of Beijing. Well, it's just because of their failure. And uh, therefore, we, should, we, we must uh, distinguish uh, this, uh, the, this uh, economic autonomy uh, from its political failure. And this also leads us to the problems. Why we lost our autonomy so quickly? Well, then we can come to the conclusion that, firstly, the complete failure of the bourgeoisie. Secondly, the, the failure of the labor movement as well. And thirdly, I would say 
it is the complete failure of the generations of my generation, or those who are in the middle forties generations. It is this complete failure of this older generation, which makes the young people now facing all the terrible consequences. And it is they because they are more sensitive. They, I call this generation, this new generation, as ninety-seven generation, who were born slightly before or after ninety-seven. So this generation was to raise it and grow and grow up in a in a terrible era, an era of continuously bad news of Hong Kong sinking into deeper and deeper. Trouble and so on. That explains why they, in desperate, uh, in desperations,、uh, they come up with the last fight, and they really don't even spare their lives.、Eh? That is why we see these young, angry people. So it is these three levels of、uh, fa- of factors which lead to the greater movement. And in terms of the governments,、eh? the Hong Kong governments and the judicial independence. Well, of course,、uh, the Hong Kong government. My guess is,、uh, the, uh, in the top level of the government, probably there is already a Communist Party secret cell in control of everything, and connect this to the liaison office. The liaison office is Beijing's, the Beijing government, the PRC's government、uh, representative in Hong Kong. Yeah. So it's a、uh, all. The only thing now is still. Not really intact, but、uh, still not directly controlled by the Communist Party is the legal system. But this is eroding very quickly because of the lack of civil power. But is there a contradiction there in terms of the PRC government, Xi Jinping's drive for total political and legal absorption of Hong Kong on the one hand, and the key Advantages and benefits derived from Hong Kong's separate status. On the other, is there a is there a core contradiction there? Oh yes, there is a of course contradictions, and、uh, it is a、uh, this is what、uh, is also challenging for Beijing, because I think its agenda is the following: they will keep the appearance of one country two systems intact, but just the appearance. They will hollow out. All the Hong Kong's autonomy under the table, secretly. Therefore, I always joke that、uh, the Chinese Communist Party should also actually named it as a Chinese Conspiracy Party. But the problem is to do this requires great skill. Of course, the Chinese government is so good at conspiracy. Yes, that only until not 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 until twenty fourteen did、uh, did its conspiracies、uh, exposed. But anyway, eventually still. The, the, its real, its hidden agenda now become very, very clear to average Hong Kong people. Therefore, it proves one thing that eventually the Communist Party failed in its effort to put these two things together, which means on the table the one country two system still there, and under the table is direct control. But the problem is, yes, it it did not succeed in that. So I think that I don't know where they, they come from, but also、uh, from all these,、uh, even from those、uh, pro-communist parties report, 
but those who are not the factions of Xi Jinping. You know, in Hong Kong, there is a daily newspaper called Singpao. It is a very weird newspaper. It was run by Chinese merchants, but it was also very, very critical uh, uh, of the Hong Kong Macau Affair Office to the extent that they they claim that uh, the Hong Kong independent movement was just an invention by the Hong Kong Macau Affair Office to appease uh, the, the the top leaders. So combining all these kind of uh, strange reports, circumstantial evidence. Many people believe, and I also believe that inside the Communist Party, I don't know whom, inside the Communist Party, there was a, a dark force, which now today try to uh, take direct control of Hong Kong by whatever means. They don't care about the appearance of one country system anymore. They don't care how people see it. Uh, and in many sense, uh, and, and that's also explained that why there were so many Radical actions. It is very clear now that in the half years uh, protest movement, some of these petrol bombs, some of these uh, burning of these uh, of shops and so on, are actually done by undercover or plain coves. Who are they? Nobody knows. Some may be police, some may be not. But I I would describe this as a kind of dark force from the Communist Party, who is intentionally putting Hong Kong into chaos. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Organized Labor and the Black Worker, 1619 to 1981, by Philip Foner, with a new introduction by Robin D.G. Kelly. In this classic account, historian Philip Foner traces the radical history of black workers' contribution to the American labor movement. Philip S. Foner was a prolific people's historian, whose many works include The Black Panthers Speak, Clara Zetkin Selected Writings, and The Letters of Joe Hill, all published in new editions by Haymarket Books. The Black Scholar says of this book, Foner's careful and detailed scholarship makes this the best one-volume study of blacks and the labor movement currently available. Organized Labor and the Black Worker by Philip Foner, with a new introduction by Robin D.G. Kelly, out now from Haymarket Books. Stepping back to something that we touched on a few minutes back, some of this historical context that I think is very important and that a lot of listeners here might not know about, in the transition to Chinese rule, why did both the Chinese state and Hong Kong capitalists see an alliance as in their interest, this governing alliance? And why did both see popular democratic rule as a threat? Well, it's uh, easy to explain. It's because um, Beijing easily co-opted the Hong Kong bourgeoisie by allowing them to invest in China uh, from the very beginning. And this fit, in, this fit into Deng Xiaoping's broader agenda of remaking 
Chinese political economy into the global manufacturing juggernaut that we know today. Yes, and uh, actually, uh, everyone knows that without the Chinese market, Hong Kong will not be so quickly evolved into a huge financial center. And this Hong Kong bourgeoisie will not get that rich at all. So it's something like similar to Taiwan that that a huge sections of the Taiwan bourgeoisie was being co-opted by Beijing as well. Therefore, this is just reasonable and natural for the Hong Kong bourgeoisie to 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 ally with Beijing. And of surely, the Hong Kong bourgeoisie fear of Hong Kong people having democratic rights, then they fear Beijing. This is hardened position from the very beginning. Even with this alliance between the authoritarian Chinese state, the Hong Kong government, and Hong Kong capitalists, has proven disastrous for ordinary people. Hong Kong is a city with incredible inequality that's faced massive deindustrialization in recent decades. Downward mobility and a severe housing crisis that forces many people to live in nano apartments that are smaller than a single parking space. But nonetheless, the protest movement has not, by and large, targeted this concentration of economic power and its ties to the state. Even given that it's created this incredibly difficult economic situation, and even though they're protesting the state part. Of that state business alliance, why are protester demands? And I want to clarify that the demands are clearly just demands, but why are they articulated in such narrowly political terms, in liberal terms? I think here is、uh, require a multi-level responses to this question because it's a bit complicated. Firstly, I uh, uh, yes, the, there are only five demands. There is no demands、uh, targeting inequality. Labor rights and so on, and even the unions doesn't care about raising this. Actually, uh, uh, some of my young younger friends、uh, has tried to raise this、uh, through online discussion,、uh, but uh, it is uh, it they did not succeed at all. Nobody cares because、uh, no 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 nobody cares about raising、uh, progressive tax and to, to so 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 as to fund welfare, more welfare. Uh, nobody cares about this demand at all. Even though people's situation economically is quite dire. Well, I think here must be heavily、uh, qualified. Daniel, here is important. This is what I wanted to say.、Um, firstly,、uh, on one hand, it's obvious that it is the young people who take the lead in this movement, and for thousands and thousands of these young people, they 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 are witnessing, they feel, and they are quite right too. They they are witnessing. A imminent fall of Hong Kong. If we are not saving this, so we,、uh, come out to save Hong Kong, then all our rights will be gone very soon, half a year, one year, whatever. So they see this as a last fight, as a last battle, and that's also explain why there are also so many suicide cases as well.、Uh, they see saving Hong Kong autonomy is is the priority. Yeah, so it should take priority. Uh, above everything else, and anything which could divide the movement should be posted later, not now. That is the sentiment. And secondly, more importantly, is that even a lot of Hong Kong working people does not feel that urgent to raise 
a labor rights issue at all. And here is very important. I find that many Western media is sometimes misleading when they present Hong Kong's economic problems. Surely, the inequality is very big. The Gini coefficients three years back, what I remember is something like 0.55, something like that. So it is, of course, in terms of inequality, it's very significant. But there is one thing that is often lost in the Western media presentation, is that we still had a semi-welfare state. Half of the population still lives in public housing. Wow, I didn't know that. Yes, exactly. Because we copied that from Britain since the 1970s. So, actually, I also live in a government-subsidized apartment, which I just which I paid a very little amount of money, then I own an apartment. Yes, this is crazy that now today, today sir, is a, a small apartment will cost you 4 million Hong Kong dollars. This is absolute crazy. And this drives people mad. Yes. But this is just a very, but this is just a very recent situation. It is just a situation persisting for less than 10 years. And still, the government is, ex- is expanding public housing. It's still four uh, short of demand. Yes, it is true. But if you are a poor working family and you apply for a public housing and the government tells you that, okay, wait for five years and then you wait, okay? Or sometimes it's extended, oh, six years, uh, yes, uh, and can you wait? Will you go, will you take radical actions to fight for a house which will be given to you uh, in five years or six years? Surely you will wait, right? So public housing is a great social stabilizer for Hong Kong. Without this, yes, Hong Kong will, will have huge protest movement long time ago. And this public housing, this legacy of the colonial government is a good one for its own administration as well, actually. So, and also we have accessible medical care for everyone. There is no, no, no screening of being able to be treated in hospitals. It is uh, far from ideal, uh, our, our medical care. But I would say it's be- much better than, uh, than, than you American. And actually, uh, I have friends uh, who already, you know, uh, Hong Kong's uh, immigrants uh, is everywhere. Huh? Uh, I have friends in America whose mother constantly returning to Hong Kong to be treated in hospitals because... The, um, in America, it's too expensive. So we have, I will describe this as semi-welfare state. We don't have a good pension. We don't have unemployment benefit until recently because Carrie Lam just announced that they were going to have some kind of uh, a, a watered-down uh, versions of unemployment benefit. Uh, but yes, for until now, we don't have one. But... The problem is Hong Kong is, has been a prosperous society for so long that the unemployment rate is always single digit. And uh, most of the time it's just 3 or 4%, which, which will be considered by economists as just frictional. As, fu- as full employment. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really, yeah, this is really full employment. So 
We have nasty jobs. We have very bad jobs. We have very low pay jobs, but we have jobs. And this keep people going. And especially for, for generation over 30 years ago, usually they have, they enjoy, you know, a relative upward mobility. If they are poor, they could eligible for public housing. And that's why it's a, you, it is not uncommon to see working family own an apartment have considerable amount of savings for people who are over 35, say, for instance. So, and therefore, we have a huge middle class as well. So the situation is not as dire as certain Western media try to paint. I don't want to go into detail what is the intention, what is, what, 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 what is their blindness, what is, what, what is their blind spot, what have they missed, and so on. But what, what I want to try to say is that why the people, even among working people, they don't feel targeting uh, inequality that urgent? It's because the situation is really not that urgent. Of course, for the young people, their chances are much less today. Yeah, but well, this is just a recent situation. And of course, it is regrettable that young people, especially students, uh, they do not have any good perspectives on the working people. They do not know certain, well, we still have a 1 billion, 1.4 billion people who live, who are, who, who, who are living below poverty lines. But we have very, very little homeless in, in Hong Kong. Any visitors who have been to any parts of the other world, uh, of the world, and they come to see Hong Kong, one thing is striking that you, you don't find uh, so much homeless. There may be several hundred, but largely they were they, they are homeless just because of other reasons, because of the the, the government too. mental health. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's mental health problems. Uh, yeah. I want to run two other perspectives by you and get get your response to them on the relationship between the economic situation and the politics. One perspective I have two examples of. One was Toby Carroll who wrote quote. A pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps individualism prevails in Hong Kong. And then I read an article in Lausanne that said, quote, Hong Kong's biggest problem is that many people think Hong Kong has no problems. Hong Kong has always prioritized economic growth above all. It is utilitarian to a fault. Since learning your first words, every step you take has been driven by the goal of enhancing your competitive edge, getting ahead, and establishing your personal reputation and legacy. What what do you make of that analysis, that there's a degree, I hear what you're saying about the welfare state stabilizing class conflict, but do you think there's a degree of ideological hegemony at play as well? Oh, yes. Yes, I have been uh, observing this uh, for many, many, many years. This is deeply in our blood. That is the problem. I think uh, it is comparable to some extent to certain uh, sections of the American population. You know? Yes. Yes. This kind, this idea of frontier men, huh? Self-made. Yep. yep. Self-reliance. Yep. Yes. Uh, minimum government. Yeah. Uh, everyone for, for, for himself and God for us all. But in America, this kind of idea is shared not by the whole population, just by some sections of the population. But in Hong Kong, it is across all classes. Everyone believes in this affair. 
Everyone believes in self-made, and if you fail, it is because you are incompetent. That is、uh, the dominant ideology. Surely,、uh, the whole colonial governments in the past, the whole ruling class, even the middle class, even the intellectuals, I would say they are all accomplices of this cultural hegemony, which is regrettable. But at the same time. There is also one more fundamental element at play, which is the Hong Kong special situation in the histories of contemporary China. Because whenever,、uh, for the past one hundred and fifty years, whenever there was war, chaos, starvation in mainland China, the southern part of Chinese people, luckily, they still have a Hong Kong to flee to. So Hong Kong is a city, not just a con as a colony. Hong Kong is a refugee city from the very beginning. It has a very strong refugee political culture, which means this is exactly what I said before: that everyone for himself. Because、um, and this refugee、uh, mentality actually evolved and upgraded in the in the in the late nineteen eighties. After the Tiananmen massacre, that the huge middle class, when they saw this massacre,、uh, the, surely they were they were scared. But their response is phenomenal. The response is not to stay in Hong Kong to fight against both the colonial governments and Beijing. No, they choose a more easy way to flee. This time, not as refugee, but as You know, well-off immigrants to Canada, to America, to all parts of the world, chiefly Western countries, and so on. And what is more phenomenal, what is more ironical, actually, is、uh, in the after the Tiananmen massacre、uh, in early 1990s, the Liberal Party's main concern, the so-called Pan Democrats, their main concern is to what was to promote. A campaign to petition the British government to grant a right of abode to Hong Kong people. So these liberal parties, on one hand, they talk about democratic movement. On the other hand, their main concern is to flee. This is a, I will, I will, I will say this is a refugee mentality, two point zero version. Another factor, it seems, is that. The the PRC government, Beijing, has tried to use the city's economic problems against the political demands and say that there actually is no political problem,、yeah. just an economic problem,、yeah. which can make the people arguing for economic justice seem like they're playing into Beijing's ploy, which is ironic. There's something ironic there because. Because Beijing is insisting that the problem is narrowly economic, and then protesters are are arguing that the problem is narrowly political, when the reality is that there's an that Hong Kong's governed by an alliance between business and the authoritarian state. Yes, Beijing's、uh, the Beijing response is is stupid and silly. It just try to it's just an attempt to to iterate uh is uh. Uh, policy, which is you are, which is、uh, just like what they did in China. 
you're, I mean, the, the, the Chinese people, huh? the Chinese people are allowed to do business, to pursue your economic success. But all civic power, all political power will be monopolized by the party and you, the Chinese common people, have no one single stake in it. You are simply not stakeholder at all. And they tr just trying to do, to implement the same thing in Hong Kong. So they try to frame the discourse as purely economic, which hardly convincing to any sensible person, isn't it? Huh? So it's not going to convince any, uh, anyone. It is just a discourse which literally recognizing that we, the communist parties, will never share any kind of political power with the common citizens. And then, of course, on the, on the side of the movement, it is uh, re regrettable that uh, it goes to another extreme, actually. So actually, they, they kind of mirror each other, that the, the protesters uh, see uh, Hong Kong uh, issue right now is just a political one. But, but here, there are, it's different uh, from the Beijing case. Whereas the Beijing the camp is highly or is highly unified in this uh, philosophy, uh, in this I will call, uh, describe this as an absolutist political philosophy. But in the movement, there are still strong undercurrent, uh, which is different from what uh, from the five demands. If you uh, read the different surveys on the movement, actually, in most of these surveys. If the, if the respondents are being asked, do you think that Hong Kong's uh, inequality is too, uh, uh, is too much to bear? Actually, most people will say yes. And most people will say that, yes, uh, 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 they, they do concern about the hard lives in Hong Kong, especially for young people. The problem is, in order to, for this undercurrent to voice out, it requires a left-wing party. But for the past 40 years, because of the worldwide declines of left-wing, there is no real left forces in Hong Kong. So there is no political representatives of this undercurrent. And that is why we have a protest movements which entirely target political issues. And, but if give them more chance... Uh, give them more time and with a little bit of push, it is possible to promote a growth of a left-wing voice eventually. Of course, it, it, it is not something short-term could be done. Has the the power of the left been undermined by its contradictory role in Hong Kong under the years? After all, under much of British rule, the Hong Kong left supported the Chinese Communist Party against the anti-communists of the KMT, but now it opposes a communist party that runs an unabashedly authoritarian, unabashedly capitalist state. Deep degenerations of the communist parties uh, uh, surely totally discredited socialisms, you know, uh, communisms, or even revolution. The term revolution is a bad word for a long time in Hong Kong. So it's uh, very hard for the, uh, for the, for, for the genuine left uh, to, to, to really grow. In the, 1970s, in the early 1970s, there is a thin layers of uh, young leftists 
influenced by the worldwide uh, uh, youth radicalization at that time. That they were doomed. That, uh, they they have no chance uh, to grow at all. Though surely they have their own weakness. Huh? I was part of that generation. But uh, yeah, yes, uh, there, there's lots of uh, weakness and uh, and also uh, too much in uh, too too much immature and so on. But eventually, I think we stand no chance. It's precisely uh, socialism is so much discredited by the Communist Party. And uh, in the seventies, uh, uh, in in yeah, in the eighties, uh, especially when the Hong Kong economy is experience was experiencing a huge boom for so many years. That it was even to 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 criticize capitalism. If you talk about you know inequality, you will be you will be laughed at. Not to say about revolution. Uh, so it's a uh, very hard situations for the left, and uh, therefore those small left organization nearly uh, mar- totally marginalized throughout the eighties and nineties and down to the twenties. Only uh, 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 I mean, uh, twenty 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 first century, the situation only uh, experienced a little bit of change in twenty ten when there was a uh, thin layers of young uh, people who are leaning to the left, but um, ten years past, I think uh, they built nothing. So this is very very hard situations for the left. You recently said, "quote." Hong Kong is ruled not by its autonomous government, but first and foremost by Beijing and this absolute asymmetry of forces between the city and the Chinese state make any sensible person to rethink the idea of a revolution within one city. Hong Kong can only win when mainland China is also ready for a mass upheaval, yet this is not in sight. I th- that's a very powerful analysis. Sobering. China is a is a massive country, and it has shown an incredible capacity to successfully repress serious resistance in particular regions like Xinjiang and Tibet, that make up a relatively tiny portion of the nation as a whole. G- given this dynamic, what is the way out for Hong Kong? Because the the same autonomy enjoyed by Hong Kong that has allowed for this protest movement is also what has meant that it's separate from the huge mass of mainland China. This is the greatest challenge uh, for the Hong Kong uh, democratic movement. The only way out, as I see it, is uh, unless the Hong Kong movement develops its strategies of allying with mainland Chinese social movement. Until then, I don't think that, that there is any real probabilities of having a successful revolution in Hong Kong in Hong Kong alone. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, during the height of the movement last year, we we saw a fundamental change in the people's attitude. Previously, no significant sections of the population uh, will accept fighting with the police. Or throwing petrol bomb, petrol bombs, and so on against the police. This is unimaginable even uh, two years back. But what made this movement significant was pre- was not just the young people today are there to do this now, but the fact that hundreds and thousands of of common citizens actually sympathize with them, 
help the young people in various ways to do this. And whenever there is big march, and then people saw those、uh, black blocks marching across the street,、uh, they all clap their hands and applaud them,、uh, uh, and so on. So、uh, by that times, I wrote about this that you know, to make a re- successful revolution in Hong Kong is quite unlikely, quite impossible actually. But it is possible that if the anger of common people. Has reached a point that they don't, they they care no more, that they are so angry that they join the young people in fighting the police, and well, if there if there if there were not just a few thousands but、uh, hundreds hundreds of thousands of people、uh, fighting the police, no police force can really stop it. But that is possible. Which means a revolutionary situation is possible, because what makes revolutionary situation possible is just you know one thing. Because、uh, people get so angry, they don't they don't care no more. They don't care even their lives. Huh? So they will. Ah,、uh, so they join the uprising. Of course, this revolutionary situation, if ever happen, will end in tragedy. There's no doubt about it. If Uh, Chinese,、uh, if there is no change in Chinese situation, so, uh, but uh, in some way, I hate to say that, but、uh, luckily, most people, although they very sympathetic to the so-called valiant,、uh, the 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 frontline, the the frontline people, ah,、uh, the, the those these radical youth, they are sympathize with them, they support them in many many ways, but they refrain from actually joining them. And I think I wrote what you quote、uh, precisely after this kind of observation for several months. That I witness, I myself witness, that the people have grave reservation to actually join、uh, the uprising. Yeah, they never cross the line, actually, and it is easy to understand because they are not stupid. Yeah, they 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 do not. Have sophisticated analyzers, but they immediately know that right in the heart of center there are eight thousand People's Liberation Army、uh, stationed in central and more in Shenzhen. Exactly. So we stand no chance at all, and everyone knows that. Only the young people don't know that, and、uh, so luckily we didn't enter into a revolutionary situation because I don't think it is. The Chinese, uh, situ- uh, the Chinese, uh, a, a, the, the, the China, China is ripe for a huge revolt right now. But we、uh, have to use、uh, to make use of this the quiet, the calming down of the protest, to use this、uh, period as a rethinking process to think about our strategy. The problem with this movement is we have a lot of tactics. But we have no strategy, and if there is ever strategy, it is calling for independence, which is self-suicidal. The best strategy for us is to call for self-determination for Hong Kong, but also call for self-determinations for all Chinese ethnic minorities, and also for all provinces and cities, and to fight against these Communist Party dynasties in Beijing. Which means a strategic alliance 
between China and Hong Kong Democratic Movement. But we have to be patient, and we have to use all our leverages to help China's social movements to rise up. This is, of course, very, very difficult. Eli Friedman recently commented about just this in an interview with Jacobin, in terms of the difficulty of building these links between Hong Kong and mainland Chinese workers. He wrote, quote, This work is made all the more challenging by the fact that links with worker movements in mainland China are basically non-existent. Hong Kong activists have played a critical role in the development of worker organizations and insurgency in China over the past 25 years, but these links are badly attenuated today. This is due to the CCP, the Communist Party of China's, unrelenting effort to smash independent forms of worker organizations since 2015, including even the tamest NGOs. Receiving money or assistance from Hong Kong is, in and of itself, risky. To what extent did this relative civil and political freedom in Hong Kong allow for activists to use the city as a launching pad for independent worker organizing in China? And and what has Xi's crackdown meant for those cross-border networks? Firstly, I think, um, yes, the crackdown on this network is very real. But uh, as far as I know, it is not 100%. There is still collaborations, although in a much more hidden and sophisticated way, this kind of collaboration is still going on. Surely, it is just a fraction of what had been in the past. But still, it is not a 100% crackdown. So there's a uh, firstly. And secondly, I think we should avoid a, an approach of previously being overly optimistic and then, under the repression right now, turns to the other extremes of overly pessimistic. I think the situation is very complicated, is not optimistic, but it is not that pessimistic. It is because of one thing, that the 30 years of so-called open and reform also included a positive sign that there is a huge growth of civil society in China, although uh, it is largely liberal-led, but and uh, yes, I assure you, uh, in China, many liberals are actually neoliberals. But we should not dismiss all of these, uh, all these uh, forces in one hand as totally, entirely reactionary. It's not that simple. It's very complicated and contradictory. I would say that, yes, um, in certain ways, uh, uh, among uh, peoples who are uh, over 30s and so on, who has experienced relative, li- relative only, but still relatively liberal regime uh, in the 90s and in, in, the, uh, in the 2000s. That, yeah, 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 people could have access to huge volumes of translations, uh, uh, all kinds of books uh, from, Ch- from other parts of the world, the developments of the cross-border collaboration between NGOs, between academia, this force is small, but it exists. And it can grow when Chinese uh, crisis uh, deepens. And it is exactly what we are facing. 
Of course, uh, uh, it's still very, very difficult. But that, and that is why patience is required, and of course, wisdom is also required. And that was why I do not agree with the Jashik case, where certain radical students um, tried to uh, use the case of a small strike to elevate it into an all-out offensive against uh, the party state, which I think is premature, and actually they suffered all the consequences. But back to the original... That's the, J- the JASIC? Yes, the JASIC. J-A-S-I-C. Yeah, uh, the JASIC case. Uh, you can check it online. But anyway... Which was supported by communist students and led to... Yes was met with massive repression. Yes, yes. But shit, but they could avoid that actually. Yes. Uh, and that's why the 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 the, the old split with the uh with this young radical now and they accuse each other. Yeah. I'm not going to judge on this case, but I mean that this case proved that patience is required. But be, uh, but, but precisely because uh, that the fruit of the past was still there. I mean the progressive force. It is not in organized form, but it's there. So in the sight of this great pandemics, it proves one thing that the Communist Party is successful in yes, cracking down any kinds of opposition, even in the near future. This is obvious. But at the same time, it could not stop itself from turning into a chaotic source as well. Just like the 2,000 years of histories of the dynastic empire China, actually, in the end, it is not because of the people revolt which makes the dynasty downfall. It is the complete degenerations of the bureaucracy. After it's privatizing all the civic power in its own hands, it gets so corrupted that it simply lacked the power, lacked the strength to discipline itself. All the discipline the center took, these are just token one. It could really, it can't stop corruptions going on. It can't stop uh, stealings of uh, state and private sector's properties from happening. It couldn't stop its incompetence and so on and so forth. So the Communist Party will punish itself. And this is what is happening. Surely, there will be a lot of side effects. The people will suffer, and this is in some way inevitable. But this also means one thing, that the grave crisis may trigger even more factional fights at the top level. Right now, we hear nothing. We don't know. But from all the circumstantial evidence, again, that these internal uh, contradictions has never halted in the past. There is a funny saying I heard from some, some of my friends that, yeah, well, do you know that in the eight hours work of a, of a top official, uh, what, what, what are they doing? Well, half of the time they will uh, evolve in all kinds of um, internal fight. And, uh, and then the other half of the times uh, uh, they will uh, entertain themselves uh, in whatever way. The conflict in Hong Kong has, of course, been swept up into this larger geopolitical and trade conflict between China and the U.S. 
While the U.S. has sought to leverage the protests for its own purposes against China, China has accused foreign plots of being behind the protests, and then some protesters have praised Donald Trump for supporting them. What's your assessment of how these local politics have been leveraged by competing powers at the global level, and what opportunities and dangers does that pose for the movement? And then finally, how should we on the Western left be in solidarity with Hong Kong and recognize that China can also be an imperial power, but but without playing into these reactionary forces here in the United States that seek economic and military conflict with China? Yeah, this is a big question. Yeah. Um, firstly, it's, it's about uh, the wavings of American flag. This phenomena is very complicated. Surely, from the very beginning, there were right-wing localists who is very pro-America. They would like to see this thing happen. Or they themselves are promoting this. But one must bear in mind that yes, uh, the right-wing localists uh, organization, organizationally speaking, is very, very small. It simply does not have the institutional muscle or organizational muscle to rally the hundreds of thousands of peoples by their own, on their own. But why were there so many American flags being waved? But actually, if uh, as a local, you can see in many protests that not just American flags were waved. Surely, American flags was the most popular, but you can see actually multiple flags. You can see, uh, you know, the, the German flags, the British flags, all all kinds of European countries' flags, a lot of Catalonia flags actually as well, even Japanese flag, uh, Taiwan flags, and so on. Says, so and when ordinary people who waved the uh, American flags or all of these kind of flags, they have a different meaning from those diehard right-wing localists. If you talk to the young people or those who are waving these flags, most of the time, they why, why you wave this flag? Do you think America is really a very democratic one? Uh, or are you pro-Trump? Actually, this is not the way people uh, uh, think mostly. They wave it is because they want to re reassert one thing that Hong Kong is an international uh, city. It's a metropolitan. It is not a regular mainland Chinese city. This is a city which enjoys autonomy and also a broad international connection, especially economically, uh, especially in economies and in culture, in everything, even if it is not in politics. So, these wavings of different kinds of flags has different meaning from different people. This is one one uh, uh, dimension that we have to bear in mind, and we must also understand one thing that Hong in Hong Kong, all parties are very very weak. No part, no democratic party or localist parties has more than more at most has several hundred or just several dozens uh, of uh, membership. Even the biggest party, which is Democratic Party, uh, they only claim seven hundred members. So we have, but we have two million people took to the street. 
So most of these peoples are just very ordinary citizens who are not that political in the first place. Therefore, even if it if it is a bit, <laughs> I think it is embarrassing to see the American flag waving around, but uh, the political meaning is not what many foreign observers uh, thought it is. And uh, uh, secondly, surely there are the pandemics organizationally very weak, but they do enjoy two main uh, forces uh, support. One is the Apple Daily, which is a very pro-American, very pro-neoliberal, uh, popular media. It is actually just a, uh, a tabloid, but it is a so-called pan-democrat tabloid. Uh, it is a re- it is a regrettable to see this, but um, it is the fact. And secondly, um, the liberals here enjoyed a great number of uh, academia support. And these two forces themselves are often also very pro-America. That is the problem. So, when the American or Trump stress that they have, they did not intervene in any ways in this movement. I believe it's true because they don't need that. They don't need those open intervention. They don't need really paying money. We are a rich city. Uh, the pandemics has a foundation to support the movement, the legal cases or human humanity support and so on. They raise more than a hundred thousand, not more than a hundred million dollars on their own. We don't need to be subsidized by the American empire. This is this is the most silly accusation. America do not need this kind of low level intervention. Uh, they only need to uh, give them media privileges. They only need to, you know, continuously to quote from Apple Daily or to quote from pro-Americans uh, academia. Then they could do the job. Not to say that in uh, the pandemic themselves uh, has a lot of linger with the American establishment. So they could intervene just by talking. So I to make sure that, uh, to have a clear picture of this so-called American intervention is important, which means that. If if the movement sometimes exhibits a very problematic position, waving a flag, calling for Trumps uh, to pass the bills on Hong Kong human rights and so on, this this is, I will not say is hundred percent of course, but there is a heavy doses of spontaneity in the movement as well. So we we have to combat with those uh, uh, right wing forces or pro American forces. We have to make sure that we target the, the, the right the target. So here, for instance, uh, especially on on your question about how American peoples uh, or the progressive peoples help in the uh, in this uh, uh, battle for Hong Kong autonomy, uh, I think one important thing is uh, yes um, to give concrete analyze and concrete support or criticism. Say, for instance, uh, the the Hong Kong's uh, human rights. Uh, Act. Uh, we had uh, we have launched a uh, a statement and uh, endorsed by twenty organizations from Americas and Hong Kong, uh, criticizing the human rights bills. We uh, the the tones of this statement is not a abstract rejection of everything the American Congress doing. We give a concrete analysis on the on the bill and pointed out that. Is actually tie American foreign policy, including on Iran's 
uh, and North Korea to Hong Kong human rights, and that is unacceptable. And I think this kind of uh, concrete analyze and critique is more easy to allow people, both in Hong Kong and in America, to understand what's wrong with the bill. We are demanding that if the American government or the Congress is sincere with its support of Hong Kong democracy, then it should at least uh, at least do what they have done uh, in the 1980s. In, the, in 1986, uh, the Congress by that time, you know very well of this too, that has passed the, has passed the law on uh, sanctioning the South Africans' uh, apartheid regime, and by that time, the law does not mention anything about American policy. It is all in all is it is about uh, sanctioning uh, the South African apartheid. And uh, this bill, by that time, was supported by many American left and trade unions and progressives. So I, I think it is a bit uh, sad to see that there in America, there is no not much um, uh, serious and constructive criticisms over this uh, Hong Kong human rights bills. So I think, um, uh, I think, of course, there is a deep root to this problem. It is because between Hong Kong people or Chinese people in general uh, and, and, and the American progressive leftists and so on, there are rarely any chances of exchange. We are talking not just with different languages, we are talking with different uh, perspectives. And this is why sometimes it is hard to, to talk to each other. So it is very important that, yes, from now on, yes, uh, there is more exchange and, and mutual understandings on, on both sides. Without this, I think uh, it, is, it is hard to have a genuine understanding on each side. Well, Aulong Yu, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you, yes. Aulong Yu is a longtime writer and activist based in Hong Kong. He is the author of China's Rise, Strength and Fragility, and he is currently working on a book on the Hong Kong 2019 revolt. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that proletarian revolutions, like those of the 19th century, criticize themselves constantly. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Special thanks this episode to all the help provided by Eli Friedman. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever else, please do leave us a nice review. Take a moment to do that because ostensibly that introduces us to new listeners, which is good. But what really does that is you telling people that you know about the show and why you like it and suggesting that they listen to it. Please 
make propaganda for us. And do take a moment to find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is a big help.